Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Welcome everybody to the next, the new episode of Gridiron America, and I am sitting here today in Japan with my good friend Joe Zimba. How you doing, my friend? Oh, Greg, it's always great to chat with you, as well as to see you from so many miles away. And I think people can't see us, but I can explain. Behind Greg is an awesome display of NFL helmets, memorabilia and everything that he needs to uh, keep track of what's going on over here. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything back there, including my action, my, my comic book action figures, <laughs> the ones that my wife allowed me to, t- to, to bring over here. I'm a huge uh, Shazam Captain Marvel fan, so you can, there's, a, there's a whole shelf devoted to that. I don't know if you can see that from here, but um, yeah, no, I've, it's, it's great seeing you. And uh, the last time you and I saw each other was, at, I forget which library it was, when we were you gave a lecture uh on the bears and cardinals and uh you know you signed for me your book uh and you know i have it proudly displayed here your your newest book on the bears and cardinals and uh and that's what we're talking about today we're talking about cardinal stuff so i always it's always a topic near and dear to my heart and mm-hmm. i know it is to you uh, obviously you've written two books on the cardinals You've also written one book on the one place that, uh, well, was the home of the Cardinals where they did their training camp, too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The Morgan Park Military Academy, the greatest high school football program that no one ever heard about in Chicago. (laughs) Hey, you know what? And it's funny you should mention that because, you know, I went to high school at one of the one of the one of I think is one of the greatest high school uh, football uh, one of the greatest high school football powerhouses in all of the state of Illinois down at Bishop McNamara. But yeah, no, the whole, the whole story about Morgan park is just, it's, it's amazing. And, um, and also too, in addition to your work, uh, doing your, your, your books, you are, you are basically professor emeritus at the sports history network with your podcast when football was football. And you were also an instructor at the Football Learning Academy, which is run by our, our good friend, Ken Crippen. So, um, and I know um, you just actually last night went on the Football Learning Academy myself and uh, signed up for the, the two courses that you are the instructor of. And uh, you got anything else coming out there soon? 
with yeah, well, uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm I'm having fun with both of those activities, and of course, uh, quite honored to participate with the Sports History Network and the Football Learning Academy. But um, we have a Chicago Cardinals page on Facebook, which we try and update on a regular basis with new information of old stuff. And I think I've told you before, Greg, I have no life. I search for Cardinal stuff every day. And if I can unturn some nugget and share it with people, I'm, I'm quite happy. But also starting to fool around with a, a couple other book titles uh, on the Bears, Chicago Bears and the Chicago Cardinals, which uh, hopefully will be wrapped up later this year. So it's kind of nice in my old age of retirement to just spend uh, about a hundred percent of my time. Although my wife's not real happy about it, uh, researching old football guys. So <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I get, it. Oh, believe me, I get it. And I know your wife too. So, and she definitely, uh, you know, it was a pleasure meeting her too. When I was at the library, uh, when I saw you, well, both times, all the times I've seen you at your lectures, your wife's always been right there with you. And, and, uh, yeah, your wife's like my wife, you know, keeps us on the straight and narrow and, they don't mind the football stuff because they know what we're doing. They, they can see it, right? <laughs> right. It's not like, you know, it's not like uh, we're, you know, in our retirement, we're sitting at a bar somewhere, just, you know, the <laughs> which football. sounds uh, pretty good too, though. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's funny here in Japan, um, you know, when it comes to football, it, um, somebody was asking me the other day, oh yeah, you know, I want to, they were asking me about the rock in the xfl and it's like oh i'm sure mm -hmm. and i, I didn't want to i didn't want to burst anyone's bubble but here in japan when it comes to gridiron football nobody knows that there's even a gridiron league here i mean there's oh. college football here and there's pro football and you know from from us being on facebook with each other and seeing my pictures and everything you know i mean there's football that goes on here and um when my wife and I and my brother-in-law, we went to the college football national championship here in December. It, uh, there was that moment that I'm sitting there and I'm just looking around. I'm like, this, what it must've been, what it was like sitting in Wrigley field, oh. watching a football game at a mm. baseball park and not only a baseball park, but you know, a historical ballpark. And even though, you know, it wasn't pro, but it was just, it had that feel. And the other part of it was nobody was sitting around me wearing anything with NFL properties. It looked like an old school football Whoa. game where people just showed up in their street clothes, cheered on the team. You didn't have every, anybody wearing jerseys or anything. It was, it was very much, it, it felt wonderful. Actually, it's just, you know, cause I've been to enough football games and I know you have where it's like, you look at people wearing the jerseys. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you wonder, do you even know whose jersey you're wearing? <laughs> right. Do you even know, you know, I mean, like I went down to my first Cardinals game down in, down in Arizona. And I've been to many Cardinals games before going on to see them at Glendale. I'm walking through, this is like hot, I mean, typical Phoenix day. It was like probably 300 degrees outside, but I'm walking through the parking lot. And I have some guy from way over in, on the other end goes, is that a Tim Rosenbach jersey? I go, yes, it is. And I have a Johnny Johnson, uh, Johnny Johnson one at home. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was really cool. Just just doing that old school. It just felt it just it was it was a throwback game, and that's it was in a throwback setting, and that's and that's what you know I'm 
you know, as you see behind me, you know, I, my shelf with my football stuff is kind of a shrine to the seventies, the era that I was a kid in. And uh, yeah, so that's, you know, I'm digressing here. So no, but um, Hey, you brought up what could be a good subject for someone to write a book is fan apparel through the centuries. Oh yeah. Got some photos of say from the 1890s at the university of Chicago, when all the fans attended horse and buggy and they were dressed to the hilt, very formal wear. And then you go in, even to the early NFL, everybody had a suit and tie on for yeah. example, when red grain showed up and how that has, has changed over the years to the apparel. Now we just try and stay warm at some yeah. of these locations. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, talking about apparel and everything. So when we moved over here, I had to give up a lot of things you know, personal possessions, like, eh, yeah. do I need this? But when it came to my NFL apparel stuff, mm, that was kind of, it was a hard line there. <laughs> so uh, a lot of my sweatshirts didn't make it. My Chicago Cardinal sweatshirts that uh, I think I've worn to every one of the, the, uh, the lectures I've been, those I had to, had to part ways with, but oh. that's okay. Cause I got to keep my, my Cardinals jackets. Um, the jerseys that I love the most, all my Cardinals jerseys, and is and I think I've told you this before, when I grew up in the 70s as a 10-year-old kid in 77, I was a huge Bob Greasy fan. I was a huge Dolphins fan, and I don't know why. Where they, I think it came with Bob Greasy having the horn rim glasses, and with the Cardinals connection, the first game I think I really paid attention to was that 1977 Thanksgiving Day game with the Dolphins and the Cardinals, and the Dolphins you know, Bob Greasy threw for six touchdowns in that game. Huh. And the, but that wasn't the most memorable part of the game. And there's a, I don't know if you can see it behind me, but there's a picture, of Con, a signed picture of Conrad Dobler behind me, who oh. just recently passed away. Yeah. And if the most memorable part of that game was his ejection. And then after he got ejected, tossed his helmet in the stands. I don't know why I remember that was that. And I'm like, okay, then that was the game that kind of hooked me on it, on, on the whole Ooh. spectacle of pro football. And, uh, but yeah, and that's, I think where I fell in love with the Cardinal bird too, but it wasn't until Bob Greasy retired from the dolphins that I started shifting my attention, you know, more Southwest than, than Southeast and yeah. Uh, yeah. became a, now I'm obviously I'm a hardcore Arizona Cardinal fan. And while I grew up in Chicago, loved the bears, you know, I'm you and I are both, you know, we grew up in an era where both the Cubs and Sox sucked. And uh, <laughs> so we could, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't, I root for both teams. Cause you know, I want, it's, it's the city that I'm for, not so much the logo on the helmet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, <laughs> it's nice having these conversations in Japan. Cause I don't get to talk football as much. So going back to what I was saying about football in Japan, um, yeah, no, we don't have really a, a pro. There's not a. The NFL is probably followed more closely by Japanese people than mm. their own internal um, professional league, which is the X League, which, as you know, I do the the Gridiron Japan podcast too. And um, but it's interesting here, just talking about apparel. Um, you do see a lot of NFL NFL apparel here, uh, mm. even in the second. Now, that, that's quite interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was in a second NFL. I was in a secondhand shop a few weeks ago. We walk by, and I see of all things an Edmonton Eskimo sweatshirt. Oh. I'm like, ooh, ooh, 
my wife's looking at me. She's like, yeah, don't you even think about it. <laughs> so, well, this has an happy ending because by the time we left the mall, the Edmonton Eskimo sweatshirt went with me. <laughs> so, oh, no, that's a nice one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I brought all my Cardinal stuff. I got my Cardinal hats. I got my Cardinal helmets. Um, got my mini helmets and everything. So it's, um, football is what kind of keeps me going here in terms of just, you know, my mornings, obviously we've got the XFL right now going and everything. So, so for me, Sunday night is Monday morning here. So this, this autumn coming up is going to be packed full of, of gridiron football Yeah, from morning, noon and night, including watching the Japanese X league on, uh, you know, during what would be normal hours prime, you know, normal football hours back in the States. So, well, that's great. Um, Cause we, we worry your friends worry about you not getting your football fixed. So I'm glad to hear that. Well, that's the, yeah, you know what, if I moved here 20 or no 30 years ago, like I had originally planned after I met my wife, that would have been hard because back 30, I mean, let's face it, what we're doing right now, the video interview and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a crystal clear call. Everything here is science fiction was science fiction 20 years ago. But now, I mean, there's, you know, the only thing difference that has changed with my life and hopefully I've got a, got, got family and friends that are listening is the fact that I'm just in a different time zone. I'm still connected, obviously, through social media. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only one thing I don't have that I had back home was, you know, uh, reasonably priced dairy products. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the, I think the pizza here is pretty good. Now. Um, but I don't have a car right now. Uh, I've got a driver's license, but we, we have yet to buy a car and, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been, a, it's been a fun adventure and with the weather breaking and everything, it's going to be, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, this spring and summer. Cause we'll be doing a lot more traveling than even what we've done so far, which you've seen on, on the Facebook. Oh, it'll be great. Hey, uh, I was going to ask you, is there any one NFL team that seems to have popularity in Japan? Well, if you go around, if you just, my unscientific observations have been the Green Bay Packers. I don't know why that is, but I've seen more Packers stuff floating through the malls than anything. And I just, I don't, maybe it's the colors. I don't know. I got it. <laughs> Next time we go to the mall, I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time in the, uh, in the secondhand shops. And, uh, and on the baseball side of it, you don't see too much with Japanese professional baseball. And it obviously j- baseball here is a huge sport. Mm-hmm. but you see a lot of major league stuff and I've seen more Sox fans here than I've seen Sox fans back home. Oh, just geez. based upon the apparel itself. That's, that's yeah, my, yeah. <laughs> Whoa. so, so, but yeah, Cardinal stuff. Yeah. I haven't seen, I think I have, I think I have the, 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 the mother load of all Cardinals gear here. <laughs> yeah. So, well, talking about the Cardinals, let's, let's get, I'm, we're digressing here. I, I, you know, for me, I get kind of long winded and it gets cathartic. Yep being able to do these kind of have these football talks. Um, but talking about the Cardinals, we had an anniversary come that yes. happened the other day that honestly, I'm happy did not go unnoticed by not only, well, it, it was nice to, and I listen to Dan Patrick every day. Um, even they brought it up, but the anniversary of the Cardinals leaving Chicago and you are teaching a class on the football learning Academy now mm-hmm. that, talks about that and there's a lot there's a lot about the cardinals moves that either is it the information that's been put out previously has been either 
either fate or either false or embellished. There's a whole story that led to this decision that I wanted to sit down and just have you tell me and, and tell the audience, how did this, how did it come to be the Cardinals, our Cardinals left our hometown and, and, and made their way eventually down to what I like to term the far, far, far Western suburbs of Glendale. Yes. <laughs> a very good description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole move situation, there's so many layers of it. I think if you're not familiar with sports, but you're a fan and you hear that a team is moving, well, obviously it's for economic reasons. And that was one of the reasons why the Cardinals were looking, but underneath it all, and I really covered this quite deeply in my latest book about the rivalry between the bears and the Cardinals that George Ellis of the bears really just could not wait to get rid of the Cardinals. Uh, they not only were defeating him during the 1950s when the Cardinals were not too good and the bears were a little better, but there was um, just this fact that the Cardinals were sharing revenue with fans. And the biggest deal was since Chicago was the only city with two NFL teams at the time and television was just starting to become popular, there was a very unique and weird rule called the blackout rule. And what that meant was that if the Cardinals were playing at home and the Bears were, say, in Detroit, the Bears were not allowed to televise their game back to Chicago, unless I think if there was a sellout or something, uh, and for the Cardinals, which never happened in the 50s. So that was the one thing that was really heavily discussed at the time was the blackout rule that it hurt revenue for both the Bears and the Cardinals. And the other part was with the Cardinals not drawing really well at Comiskey Park, uh, the other team's weren't getting the guarantee that they'd like to get as a visiting team. Uh, in the fifties, it was a guarantee of $20,000. If say the Eagles came or the Steelers came to Comiskey park to play the Cardinals uh, and the Cardinals really had a scrape to get that. Oftentimes teams also had the opportunity to take a percentage of the gate. So if you went to the bears instead of the Cardinals say, yeah, I'll take that percentage. You could make a lot more than $20,000 as the visiting team. So the 20,000 might cover expenses to bring the entire team and the traveling party and the hotels and the transportation, but teams weren't for business being professional. And so they wanted to earn a little bit more money. And as uh, I think one of the owners of the Steelers said that nobody ever made money when they came to play the Cardinals in the city. So there was a couple of reasons there. One was the blackout rule. The second was the revenue that wasn't being generated by the Cardinals. But the third major thing is the Cardinals really would have liked to have looked around a little bit to play at a different stadium. And George Hellas kind of put a kibosh on that as well. Uh, the Cardinals in 1958 attempted to move to to Dyke Stadium on the campus of Northwestern University. They felt they could draw a little more fans by playing up on the north side of Chicago. And, and there was some precedent for that as well. Back in 1931, now we're going back a few years before then, the Cardinals actually moved to Wrigley Field for their home games uh, for throughout the 30s. And, and the logic seemed quite simple. 
the owner of the Cardinals, whose name was Dr. David Jones, he was the city physician for the city of Chicago, not a man of great wealth to be owning a professional football team. He looked at the attendance for the Cardinals game on the south side compared to what the Bears are drawing on the north side, and he got this great idea. He said, I just, I'll just move our games up to Wrigley Field. And the Cubs were glad to have another tenant as well. Uh, the problem for the Cardinals was when you first dibs on dates goes to the Cubs uh, trying to finish the baseball season. And then the Bears got the second choice because they were the original tenants. And then the Cardinals got their home date choices later in the season. So often Cardinals wouldn't play a home game until the end of November. And so the experiment went on for a few years. The Bears fans never really picked up going to Cardinals games and the Cardinals fans from the south side of Chicago. And you can compare this to the rivalry between the White Sox and the Cubs in baseball now. But anyway, the, uh, the south side Chicago Cardinals fans felt betrayed that the Cardinals would play their games up there. And uh, they didn't attend the, the games as well. So yeah, and for the 1940 season, Cardinals were back at Comiskey Park. Fast forwarding to 1958, as I mentioned, and everything seemed to be falling into place that the Cardinals could move to Dyke Stadium. The university, Northwestern University, was uh, apparently very receptive to that. The Cardinals even went out and did a survey among the residents, and they thought it was okay to have football there on Sunday. So all they needed then was the approval of the National Football League. And that's where George Hallis comes in, unfortunately. <laughs> in the middle of all this talk about moving the team to Northwestern, everyone would be happy. Hallis pulls out something called the Madison Street Agreement. And Madison Avenue is an east-west street in downtown Chicago. And apparently in 1931, Dr. Jones, the owner of the Cardinals, signed an agreement with Mr. Hallis that said the Cardinals would not play any games north of Madison Street. The Bears, according to Hallis, would not play any games south of Madison Street. They would divide the city in half. And so no one on the Cardinals by 1958 had ever heard of this agreement. No one had seen it. And Hallis pulled it out, and he went to the, uh, the NFL meeting, hoping to stop the Cardinals from what he considered a movement into his territory, which would be on the north side of Chicago. And Commissioner uh, Bell, uh, Bert Bell, uh, agreed with Hallis. Said it was the toughest decision of his of his career, but he couldn't let the Cardinals move. And I remember uh, one of the Cardinals managers said at the time, and this is kind of a well-known statement, he said, well, if we had been able to move to Dyke Stadium, uh, we'd still be in Chicago, but unfortunately that started the wheels turning. That was in late 58 and the Cardinals would move a couple of years later, but uh, to end right. my story there briefly, that's kind of setting the table for the, for the whole move. Well, let me ask you when it comes to stadiums, now you and I, for those who are listening that don't know the Chicago area really is at a, you would think in a, in a major metropolitan area, like what we lived in and grew up in that there'd be a more than a few stadiums. But when it comes to, I mean, in terms of major colleges, the University of Chicago was a football powerhouse, mm -hmm. but obviously their program ended in the 30s, I think, was it? Yeah, 30s, the 30s, end they, of the 30s. They so the stadium yeah. there 
was on its way out and was eventually torn down. And obviously we know what happened underneath the stands mm-hmm. that led to the atomic age that we lived, that we now live in. But so you had Comiskey Park, which back then, I mean, even back then, Comiskey Park was an old park. It was, it, yes. It yes. was. I mean, it was it was built, I think, in 1910. I think in that, yeah, I think I'd uh, double check my numbers, but yeah, it was it was so it was an aging stadium then too. But and then you had Dyke Stadium, which listen, for those people who have never been to Chicago, they you don't it's hard to explain just how hard it is to get to Evanston, even <laughs> yes. from the city itself. Yeah, yeah. Um that is at, I lived in, you know, I lived in the western suburbs for years, and that was at least an hour drive up Harlem Avenue and then over at just not an easy stadium to get to, even with public transportation. But there is there was one stadium centrally located, and that's Soldier Field. And so my yes. question is, is was Soldier what why? Why did it take so long for Soldier Field to become an NFL stadium? Not only for the Bears, but also for the Cardinals. Right. And that stadium was built, I believe, in 1924, and it hosted huge crowds. I think for 110,000 people attended a Notre Dame game there right after it opened. It also hosted auto races. Army-Navy game. Yep, Army-Navy played there. And so, but it wasn't used. Uh, it hosted the uh, the Pan American Games in 1959, for example. But it was huge, and if you see it on television now, as the home of the Bears, uh, it's not anywhere near the size it used to be. There was a north end, uh, so they could fit this full track in there for athletic events as well as auto racing. It truly uh, was. I mean, it truly was an Olympic stadium. It was, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, just a huge, to, to get, huge. Place. You would compare Soldier Field as it was to what the LA Memorial Coliseum is. That's a good example. That right? type of grandeur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that huge place, but the Cardinals did move there in 1959. They played four of their six home games there. The uh, city of Chicago agreed to make some improvements to the stadium. So it'd be more football friendly for the Cardinals. Although the team also played two games in Minneapolis that season and looking around for new home was nothing new for the Cardinals. I remember, I recall reading about they played their opener in 1940 in Buffalo because they couldn't get Comiskey Park when they wanted it. And it seems to me there would have to be a better reason for that uh, to make the schedule that you would be conflicting with the baseball team you're renting from. But there had been rumors over the years that they might go to Miami or they might go to Nashville, for example, even San Francisco or Los Angeles before the NFL extended their their teams out that way. So it was kind of seemed like a logical move to go to Soldier Field, much easier to get to. We had Lakeshore Drive right outside it. It's much improved now, but uh, there was parking around there. Now it's a little more difficult if you try and go to a Bears game at Soldier Field. Right. But it would seem to be a a logical place. And one example I'm thinking of is to what confused me through the years is back in 1934, the the editor of the Chicago Tribune started the college football all-star game. And that drew massive crowds. 101,000 saw the Cardinals uh, play the all-stars in 1948. 
And for those not familiar with the All-Star Game, since it hasn't been around since 1976, but each summer at Soldier Field, the, the college kids who had just graduated or used up their eligibility were voted upon from a nationwide uh, survey or voting process using newspapers, and they would play the defending NFL champions. So it was a huge success right off the bat. The first game, the Bears and the All-Stars played to a 0-0 tie, but some of the newspapers at that time were talking about traffic jams, which were unheard of at that time around a, a wow, football yeah. field for the pros. And and so it worked And back really then, well. Lakeshore Drive was like the main way to get into the city. It was, yeah. One of the main ways. I mean, nowadays, mm-hmm. obviously, they're different ways, so I can only imagine. I know what those traffic jams on Lakeshore Drive are during <laughs> a normal day. I can only imagine what they would have been like back during that time period. Yeah. And they even played night games for the all-stars way back then. So mm-hmm. uh, that was just shortly after, I think the Cardinals played the first night game in the NFL in 1929 or so. Um, so it, it was, it was quite the event and it would seem logical that the Cardinals could have played there years and years before they did, but for some reason they didn't, maybe the rent was too high. I'm well, not sure, but and uh, we both know how. I mean, that, that is owned by the Chicago Park District. So it we is. No, yes. I mean, we just know with current history with the Bears right now how the, you know, ever since 1970, ever since I think 1971, the Bears have called Soldier Field home. Mm-hmm. And anybody who is from Chicago, anybody who's a Bears fan, knows what the history. You know, the Bears in the Park District. It's oh, it was always an uneasy <laughs> relationship from day one, and now I mean, obviously we're in the we're we're looking at full blown divorce here with with the new with Arlington Heights and everything, right? So yes. one, I mean, we can we can take what we know from here in the recent history and kind of extrapolate as to what that back then, yeah. I mean, it's it's not surprising that the Cardinals didn't play at soldier field but that was always a thing you know before i really got into sports history and and football history really reading up on it and again i read you know your first book when football was football and you go into great depth with your book as to not only the names of the players the owners and everything but also where they play there's a whole section of your book devoted at the very end as to the schedules and where they played and the one thing that stood out with me in your book and looking at, at those records is how little it seemed like the Cardinals were seemed like they were permanently on the road most of the, the season. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were some seasons, correct me if I'm wrong, but they only played two or three home games. They did. And that contrasted greatly with the early 1920s when one or two seasons, the Cardinals left, never left town. They would have, say, eight or nine home games, and then they'd play the Bears in Chicago, so they would never leave Chicago. And then towards the end of the 20s, I think about 1928, they had a very strange schedule where they were out of town almost every week. And then, of course, in the 30s, moving to Wrigley Field, they didn't have the opportunity to play home games when the nice weather was out in September uh, with, as I mentioned, the first home game taking place in November, late November sometimes. So it, it was a problem. And, and and you go back when we mentioned the Chicago Park District, I just recently found out kind of a fun story about how tough they were on these teams. Charles Bidwell, who owned the, owned the Bears, and this, excuse me, owned the Cardinals. He wasn't owner of the Bears too, but who owned the Cardinals for many years and his family still owns it. 
he he had a, constructed a, uh, a stadium on the south side of Chicago called Bidwell Stadium, and he opened it up for free to all the different softball teams, including a professional women's team. I did not and know that. Every year they would have charity games where you would say pay two or three dollars to enter the game, and all that money would be given to charity. And so Bidwell was really well known for his charitable efforts at the time. When he passed away in early 1947, and a couple of years later, another company uh, took it over, uh, and the park district eventually condemned the land so they could own the stadium. Mm. And so uh, some of the folks who had raised thousands of dollars for charity uh, went to the park district to get approval to play this all-star event at what was Bidwell Stadium. And the park district turned them down because it said, we can't afford and allow anybody to charge admission on a park district facility. So they essentially wiped out the entire charitable events that took place there. Wow. So that's why I'm saying maybe getting the Cardinals to rent soldier field wasn't as easy as they thought. it yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. Now here in that state, and that all makes sense actually to me. I'm like, yeah. okay, now I understand <laughs> because eminent domain, I don't know if those are familiar, at least in Illinois, I mean, eminent domain is told to me by the, state as explained to me by the state's attorney down there in will county yeah. uh yeah the government can pretty much take what it wants mm-hmm. by eminent domain and that is a good example perfect example of 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 what you know what illinois chicago politics kind of yep has always been about and um so let me ask you when it comes to let's talk charlie bit because mm-hmm. there's there's to me it's always been the what greatest what if and i say this because over the summer and you probably saw the i know you saw the pictures of of me and randy snow with the mm-hmm. world football podcast um randy likes to go visit the graves of famous individuals um famous football individuals and uh so as part of our journey uh over a course of two two days took actually right down the street from where not too far from where i lived the the graves of charlie and violet bidwell buried in they're in hillside at the mausoleum and so when i was there randy and i were having this discussion what if he would not have what let's just say hypothetically medical science was able to save him and he survived what he died from how different would the Cardinals history have been? Do you think? Ooh, boy, that is a great question. And and for a couple of reasons, one, he disproved the notion that the Cardinals were not willing to spend money. He spent a lot of money, for example, recruiting and signing Charlie Trippy in early 1947 before he passed. Right. And the other thing that was always interesting is he was good friends with George Hellas. He had owned some a share of the Bears before he took over the Cardinals. And 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 so I think so much acrimony came out and I might even called hate between uh Walter Wolfner, who married Charlie Bidwell's uh, widow. Right. Uh he's not a football man, and I still would think that. If if Charles Bidwell was there, the Cardinals might still be in Chicago. Uh, Wolfner was from St. Louis. Uh, 
he just seemed to aggravate everybody. The team that won the championship in 47 was virtually disintegrated within a year or so. Yeah. And we hear stories about how Jimmy Councilman, the coach, couldn't stand Wolfner, so he left. Uh, even Curly Lambeau, the surprise selection in 1950 as a coach, he didn't last two years because uh, supposedly of Wolfner. Uh, and even there was a president of the team that was uh, a football man who who left the Cardinals because apparently he couldn't get along with Walter Wolfner. So I think if Charles Bidwell was still around, we might still have the Cardinals on the south side. He may have jumped in and earlier work deals because he knew everybody. Who well, knows? He uh, owned and there's their, and you could even extrapolate too because yeah. you, at some point the bears and Cardinals would have had to work together towards a new stadium. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not seeing knowing what we see out in LA and what we see out in New Jersey. It's, you don't have to, you don't have to imagine too hard that that's probably what would the, the account that's what would have happened in Chicago. There actually, there might be a stadium already out in Arlington Heights mm-hmm. where two teams are playing right now. Yeah, they could be. But yeah. if you think of another thing, Bidwell was also operating two horse race tracks. Yeah. Hawthorne yeah. and Sportsman. Sportsman mm-hmm. eventually turned into an auto racing track for Indy cars. Right. Could he have taken one of those and, and remodeled it for a football team? The guy was very active and very creative. Yeah, I forgot about the property he owned, but yeah, yeah I forgot so... about the parks. Or he could have just, at the time, there was plenty of vacant land around the city that he may have gone ahead and just built his own stadium as well. Right. And oh, and so talking about that and talking about, so he passed away and two years later, Violet remarries. Mm-hmm. Now the relationship, now that to me has always been kind of the, the key turning point for that franchise is when Charlie Bidwell died everything kind of turned for the franchise. Like you said, that championship team was pretty much, they, they went back to the championship in 48 and lost by a touchdown to the Eagles. And after that, never sniffed anything hmm. in terms of, of winning for, for quite a long while. Um, so what was the relationship at that point? So when, when he died after that, so when Wolfner came in, it seemed to me everything that I've read with, with your book and with, and in other books, the team was operating on a shoestring on a constantly on a loss, but it was a loss that was absorbable. I mean, they lost money. It seemed like every year, but Mm -hmm. the losses weren't horrible and they could survive the losses by borrowing, taking from, you know, using money from other ventures Mm -hmm. to kind of supplement. Um, but how much of a, a mom and pop operation was it? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Because you've you've looked at you have looked at the numbers and you've been to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and looked at a lot of documents. So mm-hmm. I asked that somebody who's 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 witnessed those witnessed in a way kind of witnessed history firsthand through um, all your research. Yeah, it's and then that part is always always fun. But yeah, Bidwell was a, a good manager in my opinion. He ran a whole umbrella of different companies from the racetracks to dog tracks to uh, his printing company, which (laughs) sold programs and tickets for everybody in the area. So he was uh, making a good living. 
And he wasn't afraid to get involved in, as well. He was proactive, for example, with the softball leagues. He started the softball team called the Bluebirds in Chicago for women's softball. And he opened the doors for women to, to be professionals during World War II. And so he's the kind of guy, I think, was such a go-getter. And he was still so young in his early 50s, I believe, when he passed away, that he always was thinking of a way not only to, let's say, make a buck, but also to have fun doing it. In fact, someone asked him, you're losing money on the Cardinals or on this and that. And he'd said, well, what's what's the fun of having all this money if you can't spend it? So I always thought that was a neat, <laughs> neat quote for him as a manager that, as you just said, he always seemed to have the ability to, shall we say, rob Peter to pay Paul. And rob is too strong a word, but, you know, from one of the other companies might, uh, hold the Cardinals off until they could get the attendance in. And yeah, you know, the bears had the same problem in the thirties. Uh, right. George Hallis had IOUs out to his coaches and to his players like Banco Nagurski and paid them off in notes with interest when they started getting money in from attendance. And so that's why football being televised was so important in the fifties. And Hallis was one of the first to jump in starting his own little network in the early fifties. Even though Hallis in the late 40s once said, and I probably told you this, he said, bah, who's going to watch television? They're going to sit around your living room and watch a game on a little box. It'll never be popular. And of course, 109 million people watch the Super Bowl every year. So I guess he was wrong on that. But he did have the, uh, the intent to start his own television network. He saw where this might be helpful. And I think the Cardinals might have been involved in that early too. And Chicago being a huge market, there's no reason why both of those clubs couldn't have been more um, economically happy than than the Cardinals were. Well, when you say television network, what was that? I mean, explain because this is something. I mean, I've, I've heard about, but I really never. I, I didn't really. I don't really know a whole lot about. So when the Bears started their own little network. Were they broadcasting, for lack of a better, were they like the Cubs and broadcasting on WGN? And yeah. how how did how how did that work? From what I understand, Hellas was able to put together different stations that would cover the Bears, and they would share in the advertising, which wasn't phenomenal at the time. Right, but. Um, Knowing Hallis, he may, he may have gotten a, a piece of every television set that was sold in Chicago, too. Yeah, but, uh, uh, that's, that's a good point. Literally <laughs> put together a network uh, of stations in the Midwest that would be able to uh, watch the Bears games and, and therefore increase the popularity of the team. Okay. And hopefully people then would come by and invest their money for a ticket to watch uh, watch the team. And of course, things are so much different than there just wasn't much right. revenue coming in. You had your ticket sales and your program sales for, for many, many right. years in the NFL. And and so knowing that Hellas had this uh, unusual vision that after briefly saying it wouldn't work, he certainly really pushed television in the early 50s. And was it a net? And I'm probably going to ask you a whole lot of questions on this, so I'm going to apologize in advance because now, <laughs> now the old invest, oh, now the old probation officer in me is 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 starting to spin up questions like I would always do when I was doing a case. Um, so with this television network, was it outside the Chicago or was it within Chicago? Basically, I guess what I'm asking is, did they televise home games and away games in the Chicago market? Yeah, I think it was all home games that were televised outside of Chicago, going as far as South Bend or, say, Beloit, Wisconsin. Okay. 
And I'm thinking there was one or possibly two channels in Chicago, WBKB, which is now channel two, yeah. was one in Chicago that televised the Bears game. So it wasn't, from my understanding, and I haven't done a great deal of research, but it just struck me as something quite interesting that Hallis had this vision to put together different television stations and, and radio broadcasting wasn't that old either at the time. So right. they were uh, doing that on WGN going back to the early twenties, especially when Red Grange had his first game, there was two or three radio stations that were covering yeah. that game. And so uh, seeing a little bit how um, uh, the revenue might be there eventually, as I mentioned, we traditionally saw ticket sales, program sales, but now we had, the electronic, which is a strong word for the time, media coming in and getting some sales out of that as well. Yeah. And, you know, back then, you know, up until, you know, through my childhood, you know, and ten, over the air antenna TV was the main way you watched everything. I mean, yeah. um, you know, people talk about streaming nowadays and how ubiquitous it is. And nobody's what, you know, everybody's cutting, nobody's watching cable, cable subscribers are going down. But over-the-air free TV has always been a staple everywhere, not just mm -hmm. in, in America. Yeah. I cut the cord here in Japan, and I can watch all my Tokyo Giants games free. <laughs> yeah, the Tokyo Giants here—it's funny. Just, I'm digressing just a little bit, so bear with me. They're basically, you know what? When I watch Tokyo Giants here, it reminds me of watching the Cubs on WGN. Ah. they're ubiquitous. It's like boom, Giants are on. And you know, going back to you know, so going back to the Bears. They had the George Halas had the foresight to at least attempt something like that. But there was another, as the 50s wore on, there was also the talk, the push for expansion. Mm -hmm. Because the NFL, for those who don't know, who are listening to this and, and, and you know, don't really know football history, people forget that the NFL consisted pretty much of 12 teams for a good part of its history through the 1950s am i right on the number because i'm like i'm gonna I'm, assume I'm, you are but okay. yes <laughs> because it's I, I always sit down because when i tell people you know i always try to prove how, how how you know i hate saying this how old i am i go you have to remember i was born at a time when lombardi coached the packers <laughs> and there were 12 nfl teams and i get this look like what so but back then you had the NFL. The NFL was 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 an old boys club, including the Bidwells. The Bidwells, mm -hmm. you know, they were not that they were founding members, but they had been with the NFL, much like with the Roonies and everything. They were part of that all the fan the the traditional families that and for a lot of the teams are still with us. I mean, the Gaskies, yeah, yeah. the Roonies, the Bidwells, I mean, those three families right there. Um and unfortunately, the Bells are not part of that. And you and I are both friends with Upton. And, right. and, and Upton tells a story about how, you know, fate intervened that him, him and his brother did not, weren't able to own the Eagles because of his father's untimely passing. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you had to push for, people were clamoring for expansion. The 1950s, it was post-war America. Things were changing, America, but the NFL was didn't want to expand. And in your research during that time period, 
aside the Cardinals, it seemed like everybody wanted to buy the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And so the Bidwells didn't want to sell. And what was the reasoning be who was the reason? Who was the person behind saying we're not going to sell the team? Was it Violet or was it uh, Wolfner? Yeah, that was Wolfner. In fact, even that if we we bring our story back to the Cardinals leaving there, Wolfner was adamant, even in the early 50s, that saying we're not leaving Chicago. And even when the the move was announced on uh, March 13th of 1960, three days before he was denying it, two days before he was denying it, the day of it, he was denying that they had any plans to move. So that's, I think, why it was so harsh a decision for the fans who kept up hope that the Cardinals would would still be there. So um, it was Walter Wolfner. Yeah. Okay. And so like with the events that led up to it, now we know in the 50s, towards the end of the 50s, you know, the Cardinals shifted over to Soldier Field. And why, why did, do you recall why did they shift to soldier field? What was, how did that come about that season they played in soldier field? There's two stories I heard. One was the white Sox were not interested in sharing the field any longer. Uh, white Sox had good teams there in the fifties. And, and 59 was the year they went to the world series. Won the too. Pennant, yeah. So uh, there was that fear of a football team being in there and destroying the, the grass, et cetera. And the other that was that the uh, Cardinals, after being turned down for Dyke Stadium, really wanted to test the grounds, maybe finally seeing if there was some place where they they could attract more fans, Soldier Field being a logical move. But, uh, of course, as I mentioned, they played two games in Minneapolis as well that didn't really draw that well. They only drew about 20,000 people each. But it was still a time of experimentation. Um, until the denials kept getting stronger and stronger from Wolfner. And I guess when someone denies something that much, you wonder, well, what is really going on here? Right. And, but there was one individual, there are actually two individuals that really pushed for the cart to buy the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking Bud Adams and Lamar Hunt. Yep. Yep. And I always wonder, I always like doing, again, I go back to the what if questions. What if the Cardinals were now known either as the Houston Cardinals or the Dallas Cardinals? Mm. How different our reality would look. Yeah, yeah. Just on, on the sports, uh, just on, on when it comes to sports. Would we have, I mean, I think we, the NFL would have expanded just, you know, knowing where we're at now here in the 21st century but just the whole landscape of sports would have been so completely different mm-hmm. had the cardinals moved to dallas or Houston. Yeah. and of course we've all heard the story that when lamar hunt apparently couldn't buy the cardinals he decided to start this competing league called the afl and it was logical for the cardinals to go to st louis so the afl wouldn't get a foothold in right and that's what that's what this kind of it's always been the story i've heard well that's the re the AFL is the reason why the Cardinals went to mm-hmm. St. Louis. But was that the case? Do you think? I think that the, the case was Wolfner wanted to get as big a payday as he could by okay. moving the team. And the attendance had been yeah, pretty lousy, except when the bears played in against the Cardinals yeah. at soldier field, or excuse me, at Comiskey park, 
their attendance was really horrible. I think in 59, only 10,000 showed up for a game with the Steelers. So sure. it would be uh, this stuff. And we hear of, of Wolfner denying it, even the day of the announcement, this stuff had been going on for months. You just don't move an entire NFL team. Oh, right. So yeah. my opinion, of course, but, and it must've been a, a, a nice incentive for the Cardinals to pick up and move to St. Louis and everyone says it was just about television, and I agree with that too. But when you throw in a half million dollars back in 1960, and yeah. a lot of that supplied by George Ellis of the Bears, it makes for intriguing possibilities as we uh, as we consider what might or might not have happened. But you know, what if Hunt had bought in the Cardinals with his uh, apparent lots, lots, and lots of money? Yeah. Uh, how would the NFL look differently? Where would he have moved the team? Would the AFL never have occurred? Would we not have Joe Namath promising to win? And we so, wouldn't have America's team. Yes, right. <laughs> we wouldn't have. Would, would they have been here even? So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's always, I like doing, and that's the great thing about sports history is when I sit here and like, okay, well, what if? I mean, I talked to Tim Hanlon the other, uh, was it last week now, with good seats still available. And when I listen to his podcast, the, but the leagues and teams that have passed, it's like, man, but man, history would have twisted just a little bit. Where would we be at today? Whether it be baseball or basketball, but you know, obviously you and I were huge gridiron football fans and the yeah. whole football aspect. And I think, honestly, I, I can't even imagine a reality where the Dallas Cowboys don't exist where, you know, 32 and 32 NFL team league doesn't exist. Yes. And you just, all the possibility, I mean, there would have been no AFL. Um, you would have, you would have still had Lombardi. You would have mm -hmm. still had those great Lombardi teams, but yeah, no Joe Namath. You would mm -hmm. have had Joe Namath. He might've been playing for the Cardinals for all. He got drafted by the Cardinals. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it makes for a lot of interesting what ifs, but the, when it comes to the bears and the Cardinals history, it is very much a joined history. Mm -hmm. And what are some things that people don't realize that joins the bears and the Cardinals, um, aside from the fact that they're both the original founding members, are there some other tidbits of trivia here that a lot of people wouldn't know and, unless they read your book and without giving the whole book away, is there ah, anything you can right. share? You get anything you can share there? People wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know just by looking at stuff on the internet. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that we include in the book, of course, has not been seen by the internet. Of course, we all know that the Bears and the Cardinals are the only two original NFL members that are still in existence. Uh, the fact that they shared early radio station coverage uh, in Chicago, which was interesting. They shared Wrigley Field, as we talked about earlier. I did not know it. Well, I mean, I've read your book, but mm -hmm. had I not read the book, I would have not known about the radio. I did and not know the fact the that they stuff. really made Chicago the heartbeat of the National Football League when they played twice a year and they drew big crowds and the rivalry and the stories of uh, the story I've told before about the El Capone mob breaking up one of the games between the Bears and the Cardinals. Uh, when a fight broke out on the field and the fans uh, came onto the field, the police came onto the field and uh, all sorts of fun stuff was going on. 
And looking back, and one of the neatest things that I've been able to find, which I base a lot of my book on, is at the Hall of Fame now has released the Dutch Sternemann Papers, right. which Dutch was the co-owner of the Bears in the 1920s and very early 1930s, and his family maintained all of his records. So Hallis took care of the football stuff. Sternemann was a co-coach and co-owner, but Sternemann did the finances, and that stuff has just been, whoa, eye-popping. Yeah. To see what's happened with the yeah. uh, actual holding in my hand, the documents that state how much each team made when Red Grange played his first game in 1925. I have been to many of your lectures and you've shown <laughs> that document on the screen and it is a fast, all the documents you show are fascinating, but yeah, mm -hmm. that is one of the ones where you're like, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you, it's, you know, unless you've got a, you know, unless you're, an expert in finance and can figure out what those numbers mean in today's dollars. Yeah. They don't seem at first glance, but then when you look like, Oh, but yeah, back then it just, the, the teams operated so much on a shoestring. It was yeah. very, you know, almost all the NFL itself really up until the 1960s was, you know, it operated on a day-to-day -day basis. It seemed mm -hmm. like, there was, you know, you had teams folding. I mean, up until the last team that actually folded, I think, was the Dallas Texans. Oh, yes. Was the yeah. NFL Dallas Texans was the last team, NFL team that I think actually folded, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so when it comes to the, that time period in the 50s, going back to little things like even logos on helmets. So when the oh, Bears... Right, yeah. Yeah, so up until what? I mean, the Colts I, were the Colts and the Rams were one of the, you know, talking. Um, I bit you know me. I do love football aesthetics, and I'm very much a fashionista when, ah. it, when it comes to football. <laughs> That's the reason why I'm a huge Cardinals fan. I love the old bird. Not yeah. a big fan of the new one, the one that they currently have, but it is what it is. But mm -hmm. that old the, the parakeet on the helmet, you know, for when I was growing <laughs> up is. And also, too, with the way the Dolphins logo was and the Bears, just very, just, just something about it. I can't even, can't even explain why, explain why or how. But when the Cardinals were in Chicago, um, when they made the change to St. Louis, they went to Sportsman's Park, and yes. they obviously they that's the year that they slapped the hel the the logo on the helmet, and. To me, that's always been kind of the birth of the modern NFL. When you teams started, you know, paying attention to like NFL properties, NFL films came along not too much, right? You know, right about that time too. So, you know, without NFL films, I, you, you might agree with me, you might disagree with me, but I don't think without NFL films, the foot, the the NFL would be as popular as it is now. Mm -hmm. Least they brought a, a little bit of poetry to a very difficult and challenging game. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's something you don't see. I mean, the NFL films that we grew up with that we know is not the same NFL films that we see on the NFL network. Now mm -hmm. we get glimpses of it every now and then for old specials. And thank God for YouTube. Thank God for on-demand stuff. And even the NFL mm -hmm. network has got yeah. some of the old stuff and everything. Um, so going back to when the Cardinals left Chicago, they went to Sportsman's Park. Was what was it like in Chicago? Was it just like boom, they're gone? I mean, was there an outcry? Was there 
I mean, was it wasn't like what you saw in Cleveland when the Browns left, oh, or nice. even in Houston when the Oilers left. What was it? Was it just kind of like a shrug from the city? It was shock. I think a lot of shock, mainly because Wolfner kept saying there's no chance the team is going to leave. And people thought, yes, there is a chance. But in the talks I give around Chicago, and people still are saying, yeah, my, my dad or my grandfather was a fan and he was so upset. Now he follows the Bears or he follows <gasps> the Packers yeah, or uh-huh. he still follows the Cardinals. And well, so you know, I anytime the Packers were... lose, an angel gets its wings. And we yeah. both know that, both being a Cardinals and Bears fan, yeah. anytime both our teams beat the Packers, and Angel gets its way. That's so. a good day. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of dismay, a lot of disbelief in the newspapers as well. Uh, pretty much more uh, against Wolfner for this, but uh, it's hard to say. There's so much stuff going on behind the scenes, the finances, and I think it would have been a lot cleaner if he had just not spent so much time denying it. Every paper around the country uh, that I tried to look at, and they're from Tampa and Minnesota and New York and Wolfner being on the wire service is saying, right. we're not going to move. We're still the Chicago Cardinals. Even on the morning, the sale was announced. There's an article saying we're not. It, moving. Rem- it reminds me of Robert Ursay moving to Colts. Oh yeah. 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 Except, you know, no alcohol involved. Yeah, right. If you remember those videos of Ursay <laughs> at the airport denying the Colts were going to move, and not too much later, they were gone. Um, In the but, heat of the night. Yeah. and But with the Chicago media was, I mean, what, you know, it seems like it, and maybe you'll agree with me, and I, I think you will, but when it comes to the south side of Chicago, the, the teams on the south side to me have always kind of gotten a short shrift. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember way back when, and what the late eighties, early nineties, Sox were talking about moving if they wouldn't have got a new stadium yeah. and they got a new state, but we would never, but the, nobody's, you know, there's always that talk about, well, if the bear, you know, the bears obviously are moving to Arlington Heights, but they're not leaving Chicago and we know, but the bears are going to Arlington Heights, but they're still going to be the Chicago bears. The Cubs are never going to leave Chicago. And if mm. the Cubs ever did, the outcry would be. But, and just reading it, just, I never got a sense that, yes, there was people that were upset, but there was never an outcry that, like you would see now if a team just up and moved, much like the yeah. Browns did, mm-hmm. or even the Oilers did, and uh, even with the Raiders. So, um, but that was, that was the first big move too for the NFL, the first it was, major yeah. relocation. And- and that's something people don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and I agree with you when you said there wasn't a lot of uh, concern because it quickly became old news in Chicago. Right. Uh, the Cardinals are gone. Oh, well, uh, we still have the Bears. and The Bears are more popular. Right. We can get behind them. So I think how quickly that it was not a front page story yeah. said a lot about the Cardinals move. And even yeah. the fact that when they moved, um, some of the, and there was a lot of newspapers in town then didn't really cover that it, too deeply. The Tribune did, of course, and I think the Daily News and the Sun-Times, but um, it wasn't a, a great deal of coverage, nor was there a lot of hand-wringing and saying, oh, woe was right. us, we lost our team. Well, they're gone. Well, and also, too, the, nobody was demanding a new public stadium, too, if, if, if yeah. I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Was there a demand that was... Were, were the, 
I don't recall ever reading anything about it, but were the Cardinals demanding that the city pay for a new stadium or? I mean, was no, it... they seem to have kind of thrown the towel in when Hallis defeated them on Dyke Stadium going to Northwestern. Yeah. But they did. Here's an interesting thing about all that. The Cardinals went into an agreement with the city of Chicago to remodel Soldier Field. And the Cardinals were going to pay or split the cost with the city. And when they left, that was one of the stumbling blocks because the city wanted its money. And also right before the sale was announced, Wolfner got in the newspaper and said that in 1960, all of our home games are going back to Comiskey Park. Well, he's already under contract to Soldier Field. And it just seemed if he knew they were going to, to move to St. Louis, why he would say they're going to play all their home games in Comiskey Park. Yeah. So again, more confusion. I think, I think his actions really turned off a lot of the media and the fans. Well, and I could, I could see where they would, they would, because at that point, credibility, mm-hmm. you know, and back then all people knew was what they read the newspapers. Yeah, what they saw on TV and what they heard on the radio. They didn't have what we've got now. So if the newspapers were, you know, yeah, I, I can, <laughs> you, you can, I can definitely see why it would be old news and it'd be on to it. And, but yeah, the credibility, it, you know, it, well, when Ursay moved the Colts, uh, there was a huge outcry. And we remember when all that happened, mm-hmm. but they would keep replaying what Ursay said over and over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, but back then we didn't have that, you know, there wasn't that videotape of, it was just what you had in the paper. And like you said, everything moved on. There wasn't mm-hmm. a rehash of the past. So, and, and real did quick, we have negative reporting from the media, nor did we have the ability on social media for 8 million individuals to voice their opinion on this. Exa- yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, in some ways good, some ways bad. So mm-hmm. it's always, uh, you know, and you and I both know Twitter and, and social media is a double-edged sword. So, yes. um, yeah, I could only imagine if that would have happened today. And so now here we are. And the, the Cardinals being in St. Louis, that's a whole nother chapter that, mm-hmm. and I know that even though I know you're, you know, huge, you're not writing it. You, your research has never been, it's always ventured. You've always had a little carryover into the St. Louis years. But your focus has always been as when the, the Cardinals have been in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously your dad was under contract with the Cardinals. Mm-hmm, exactly, uh, and that's yeah. how, that's what generated, that's what got you to where you are today. Being, like <laughs> I said, the professor emeritus with the Sports uh, History Network and amongst the, the Professional Football Researchers Association. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you and, and other guys like Ken Crippen keep, you know, you know, keep the, the football history, the pro football history spirit alive. Cause it, and it's one of those subjects that just, you know, like you said, you do this all the time. I've, I've noticed mm-hmm. in my retirement, that's all I do is I kind of eat and sleep football. It seems like, and yeah. I do enjoy it. So, well, before I let you go here, uh, before we end now, you and I, even though we're going to hit the stop button, I got a whole nother idea that I want to talk to you all after right. the recording stops, but <laughs> Let everybody know where they can find you on social media and also more importantly, where they can find your book because it's available on the new books available paperback. Do you have, I can't remember. Do you have audiobook? No, not yet. No, okay. well, but it is, is available on Kindle. Though. 
There's yeah, a Kindle available version. On Kindle. Mm-hmm. So where can everybody find you? Yeah, I think the easiest spot is um, a couple ways, right through McFarland Publishing uh, on their website. Also, of course, Amazon, but the websites for, say, Target or Barnes & Noble also would have the book. And it's in uh, paperback as well as an e-version, uh, which is about half the price, I think. So uh, also on social media, we're on Twitter at uh, Shy Cards. Um, and then on our Facebook site is Chicago Cardinals. And what else is there? But um, yeah, those are the the main places to reach us. And I always, uh, our, my email is on there too. Uh, we will respond to everybody who writes in. I have questions about the Cardinals back when they're in Chicago. And that's always a lot of fun because we'll get um, notes from people uh, whose say grandfather, great grandfather okay. played for the Cardinals. And it was really nice this past fall. I did, um, I think, 20 talks to promote the book. And you were at a couple of them and managed to stay awake. So I'm always grateful. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you before, before we, we finally wrap up here, are you, I know you're, are you doing any, um, any upcoming talks say down where you're at right now? I know you, uh, been floating around the, uh, the Arizona, floating around Arizona doing, uh, giving talks, any more planned down there? Well, a couple that we, one we did in Mesa at the Mesa library, then we'll be in Ventana Canyon, but um, I'm not sure when we are going to release this portion of the talk, but that's, uh, I think, March 20th. Oh, this, this thing's going out later on tonight after, uh, oh, okay. after I take care, after I spend my day outside working in the yard here, it's a sunny day here in <laughs> Southwestern Japan. Um, but are you planning on being back in Phoenix anytime soon? Like the Mesa area, because I've got, I know. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give a shout out to my aunt and uncle who are live right. in Mesa. Um, I don't think they were at your. I, in fact, I know they because they would have said something, but they didn't. They weren't able to make it to your last talk in Mesa. Are you gonna be going back to Mesa anytime soon? Yeah, not probably till early next year. I think we will okay. be back. Um, right. But wrapping up my time here, and uh, we we want to thank everybody who, who came to that Mesa presentation. Uh, a lot of people and we had some great questions and it's nice to see fans interested in NFL history and particularly the, the, the Cardinals history back when, uh, back when oh, we were yeah. in Chicago. Well, and the great thing about out where you're at and in Arizona, like I, at the very beginning, I said, you know, it's a far, far, far Western suburbs yep. of Chicago. Cause they got everything. <laughs> and it's like, Hey, there's a Portillo. I, somebody I was, when I was down there for reserve duty for, for the four mm-hmm. years I spent down there. So it's like, Oh, you're from Chicago. We got a Portillo's down here. You want to go to Portillo's? I go, I got a Portillo's literally like a block down from my house. I don't need to do Portillo's in, in Phoenix. Um, you know, I had other, I had other good places that I like Fates Brewery over there on Scottsdale road is always, if you've, if you've not been there, it's a great place to go. So next time you're in Scottsdale, Scottsdale and McDowell, it's one of my favorite Mm. places. So, well, Hey, listen, my friend, it is good talking with you today. You definitely have made my day. It's always good when I'm sitting here in southwestern Japan talking football to my friends far away on the other side of the world. And again, the great thing is it doesn't feel like I'm on the other side of the world. No, no, and, this is uh, great. Yeah, and we will definitely do more of this because, like I said, I got an idea for uh, – I've got an idea that I've kicked around with our fellow Sports History Network podcasters that um, – you know, I want to talk to you about and have a meeting on and figure out how we can incorporate some uh, 
how we can incorporate technology into some future podcasts, oh, good. which I'll explain, I'll explain about. So, but for, Hey, for everybody listening, um, thank you for, thank you very much. And, uh, believe, you know, believe me, you're going to be hear, hearing from me pretty soon. Cause I've got, uh, got quite a few guests lined up here for gridiron America here, um, here from the 55 yard line on the sports history network. And the reason why I'm doing these kind of solo is with the time change and everything, my buddy, Scott, not always able to line up our times. And, um, you know, Scott, I always tell people that are listening, Scott is still here. Scott and I have not divorced, but uh, it's just a matter of just lining up things with, with his life there and with my life here. Um, he, um, yeah, Scott's doing well and hopefully you're going to be hearing from him sooner rather than later. So with all that said, um, Hey, if you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at CFL America. I'm also at XFL America, where I've got the XFL InfoWars show. And if you're watching XFL football right now, which I am, which I'm going to be honest with you, I'm enjoying watching, but it is the third version of the XFL. And if you had a chance, I just recently interviewed um, Brett Forrest, who wrote the, the history book on the, on the first XFL, which was a very you know, it was an enjoyable interview and that's another great book out there. Joe, you haven't read that book yet, right? I have not. No, but now you've got me uh, anxious to look for it. Yeah. Just re-released too on Kindle. And it's, it it is truly, it's one of those, those books where you just like, and then, you know, four hours later, you're midway through, you know, almost done with it. It's just, it's a phenomenal read. And, um, and with that said, real quickly, before I let you go here, you got any, you working on any other any books coming out? There's two I'm working on. One will have to do with the Chicago Bears in the 1940s. And it would be uh, focusing on how one team won four NFL titles in a oh, five nice. or six year period. And then a few years, we're coming up to 1925, which in my opinion is the craziest year in NFL history. So there might be a book on that as well, Greg. Nice. Up. I know you're, I know where you're alluding to too. So, <laughs> and I will say, I will, uh, and I'll leave that there w- with that. I won't give away the spoiler on that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, listen, on behalf of myself and Joe Zimba, thank you for listening. And I shall be talking with you, or we shall all be talking with you very, very soon check out Joe's podcast when football was football on the sports history network. And um, thank you for listening. This is Billy Stacy of the St. Louis football Cardinals and the Cardinals are charging.
This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.